we decided the country. We decided that the multiculturalism, the diversity, is something that is a value to society. Hello, and welcome back to the next page. The UN Library and Archives podcast designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. My name is Tiffany Verga, and if I sound unfamiliar to you, that is because I've just started working at the UN Library and Archives Geneva as a producer for the podcast. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Federico Viegas, who is the new permanent representative of Argentina to the United Nations office at Geneva. Mr. Viegas spoke to our director, Francesco Pisano about the history of Argentina, the country's approach to the 2030 Agenda, and how multiculturalism has influenced multilateralism within the country. Without further ado, we hope that you enjoyed the discussion in today's episode. And Ambassador Phil, welcome, and please tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you came to diplomacy. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you to all the listeners um, for the invitation. Well, actually, you know, when I was a, a teenager, I was an exchange student in the United States, and I had to fill out a form when I was 17 years old. I had to fill out a form, and there was a question that says, which is your goal? And I typed in an Olivetti uh, typewriter, I said, become a lawyer and enter the foreign service. And that was at 17 years old. <laughs> and of course, the, that year abroad, I think, confirmed my the idea I had for my future. So I was born in the north of Argentina, uh, Santiago del Estero. Uh, my hometown is closer to Bolivia than to Buenos Aires. And then I went to study in Rosario and I studied law. But at the end of my career, I knew that I, I was willing to enter the foreign service. And that's how uh, I became a diplomat after the different process that every country has. And you have a very long career. And I know that you've been a client of our library for nearly 30 years, yes. which means that you were in and out of Geneva exactly. uh, several times. So what was your impact with international diplomacy? What was the first time you went into a UN meeting as a diplomat? Well, it was actually at the privilege of coming for the first time in my life to Europe, arriving at the Geneva airport. So the first time I saw Europe was coming out of Cornavan Airport. I will remember the shock for me, for the history, which means Europe. And it was because I was a United Nations Disarmament Fellow. I was uh, selected as a UN Disarmament Fellow. And therefore, the program, as you know, is a very traditional program of the UN, very important. 30 diplomats from 30 countries coming, doing actually like Jules Verne, the around the world in 80 days, starting with 40 days in Geneva for the conference on disarmament. And so that's that's how I came here. And since then, I dealt with disarmament issues, uh, chemical weapons, and, and then I was twice director general of human rights. Uh, therefore, for whether for disarmament or for human rights, I've been coming in and out of Geneva for the last 30 years. And using this beautiful library, especially at the times when we didn't have laptops, nor internet, nor cell, this was the heart of the, of the UN for delegates to, to exchange, to write our speeches, to look for information. 
So nice to hear that from, from, from an ambassador. So thank you. Thank you for that. So before we go to the heart of our conversation, which is about Argentina and the UN and in the world, let's have a, a little bit of a presentation of your country. So I know like everybody else, Argentina has a rich and fascinating history. And for those who do not know your country well, I suppose everyone knows the name, but not so much the country perhaps. How would you present Argentina rapidly? And what are the key moments of the history of your country? Well, Argentina is a country that is part of, of a world that, as you know, was uh, divided through colonialism, first of all. So out of the, of the members of the UN, uh, you have different historical process that became those uh, states a member of the UN. In our baggage, we are part of the picture of colonialism. The, the first colonialism, of course, from Spain. Our process was one of the first independence process. We became, uh, we had our revolution in May of 25th of 1810. As you know, 1808 was the first in the region, Haiti. 1810 was Argentina. And then the different countries, almost all of them, after Argentina. So that came, and therefore the Spanish institutions, heritage, etc., is very important for Argentina. Actually, you look at the last names, you will find many, many Spanish descendants. But every country builds its present and future according to the values and social constructions that the majority of the society decides to do. And at one point, Argentina decided that we were a big country with few people and enormous potential. And therefore, there was, at the end of the 19th century, a decision of massively incorporating immigration in the country. We were one of the few countries in the world that had an article in the Constitution that specifically called at that time for fostering immigration in a massive way. Therefore, in 1910, three out of four people walking in the city of Buenos Aires did not speak Spanish, were immigrants. The only city in the world that had the same ratio was New York City. Five countries in the world have received the highest amount of immigration in a short period of time. And one of those five, along with Canada, Australia, U.S., is Argentina. So that's part of our identity. But at the same time, you know, the different process of evolution of a country have elites in a way. They're, they're all run by elites, different elites, whether cultural, economical, political. And at that time, the elite did not have the evolution of democracy and fully representation of, of the masses, etc. that came after all the revolutions at the beginning of the 20th century. Therefore, there was a huge social debt of a big country that was developing but had a lot of people that were not part as, as uh, actors of that development. And therefore, we had a huge process. That, that was the turning point in our history. A huge process that we decided that the development came for, by inclusion of those masses. And therefore, we had a systematic process 
of using our economic advantage uh, that we had at that time in order to make a low, the lowest class a middle class through a, a new deal, basically, that we had as a country. And that is something that is very characteristic of Latin America. Any social scientist that uh, analyzes will see that the presence a long-standing presence of the middle class as actors through public free education all over the country has been one of the characteristics of, of, of Argentina. But fortunately then, uh, the other point in history, which is very sad, the darkest period of Argentina, is that unfortunately the world and the UN was a hostage of this. The world was divided since 1947 in the good and the, and the evil and uh, they decided that you had to choose sides and millions of people died on one side and on the other side because of that division. And unfortunately, we, the countries, we were part of a bipolar clash that we were not creating that clash, but we end up being victims of that. In that sense, Argentina, that had quite a history of military coup. Because of that uh, tension with the social inclusion, it, already in the 30s, we had our first military coup where we deviated from the democratic trend that we were going. And uh, but the coup in 1976 was a coup that started the cruelest and darkest period of history in dictatorship. And the UN has a lot to do with that because at that time we did not have internet or WhatsApp or YouTube. And it was written a journalism, basically, that exposed what was happening in the different countries. So they decided, the dictatorship in Argentina, to use uh, the enforced disappearance of persons in a massive way in order precisely not to be exposed of what they were doing. And they did it because of the Cold War. They wanted to do things in order to eradicate and fight communism. And um, with that, the founder of the Grandmothers of Plaza de Mayo, which the only crime they committed was to go every Thursday at 3 p.m. to find out what was happening with their kids and their daughters that were pregnant. The founding father, the mother of the Plaza de Mayo, Susana Villaflor, was abducted and thrown alive from a plane of the state to the Rio de la Plata, and 20 years after that, her remains were identified. Just to give you an example of what we are talking about, the clash of, of what the Cold War had an impact. And uh, the UN had a lot to do because the first special mechanism on human rights that was created in the Commission of Human Rights in the UN ever was in 1980, a working group on enforced disappearance of persons. And at that time, the realpolitik of the Cold War and the good relationships of the dictatorship prevented Argentina from being condemned, sanctioned here in the UN. And so the victims, many exiles that were living here that were saved from that process, they came here and they said, we cannot create the punishment to the government in a political way in the commission. So they started having allies in the special rapporteurs, people, amazing people like Theo van Boven and, and, and many others. 
that said, okay, we have to look for special procedures to address what was happening in Argentina. And so the massive, uh, the massive information about what was being done ended up in the first special procedure on human rights in the UN, the working group that until today is there and is working with the enforced disappearance that unfortunately is something that is still happening. And from there, from the arc, we came to the light in democracy in 83, after eight years, and we matured as a society and decided that human rights had to be part of our DNA as a democratic country. And so uh, that country that was an example for the bad in 1980 became the leading country in the negotiation of the International Convention against the Enforced Disappearance of Persons. So that's, that's uh, in a way, the process of, of transition from darkness to light in, in Argentina. And that's why I said fascinating history. It's a fascinating history. Thank you for summarizing so well with these turning points. I'm sure the audience is enjoying this a lot. Let's, let's go back now to the role of Argentina in the, in the Americas and in the world. So mm-hmm. you mentioned it. Argentina is a big country. It actually is the second largest in the American continent and is the fourth largest in the Americas. It's the second largest in South America because mm-hmm. Brazil is number one, but you're also the eighth largest country on earth. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a big country. So what is the place in the American continent from a political and strategic point of view? And what can be said about your relations with your American neighbors? Well, I like to quote former president of Uruguay, which uh, I think is very wise, Pepe Mujica, president of Uruguay until some years ago. And he said that we are estamos cocidos de por vida. We are son, you know, like a tissue. We are son for life, our countries. So the thing is, if you know that you are in a neighborhood and you live in a house and you know for sure that all your life you will live in that house forever and you have a neighbor in the other house that will also live for eternity in the next house. The question is, what is the smartest thing to do? To get along well with that neighbor that for eternity will be together or not? And in a way, that's what happened in Latin America and Argentina and Brazil. The two were the leading countries in this new phase of the relationship that, of course, came because of recovering democracy in our countries. Until we recover democracy... Uh, with uh, Alfonsina and Sarney in the in eighty four, unfortunately, our military still had uh, war games in the military academies, analyzing conflict hypotheses of of problems among the countries. It was natural for a diplomatic acad- uh, for a military academy to to make war games exercising on invasion, and we were on the brink of an armed conflict with Chile in nineteen seventy nine because of a territorial dispute and. We were glad, both countries were glad to end up in an arbitration that prevented the war. And therefore, the role of Argentina is, along with Brazil and other countries, to foster these common values, a common interest, 
common realities, common cultural heritage, and therefore our agenda, we can have sometimes disputes and different approaches to certain things. But we have been very coherent in understanding that our Latin America has a world, a place in the world if we are together. Thank you for the powerful message there. I like the analogy of people living in houses next to each other. Let's go back to something you said before, talking about this economic growth, economic power. Now, um, everybody knows that South America has experienced unprecedented development in our modern history, economically and financially speaking. But a few know that nothing really compares uh, with the performance of Argentina, who had the world's highest real GDP already at the end of the 19th century. So in 1895, Argentina economy was number one in the world, real GDP, GDP mm -hmm. we're talking about, and was consistently in the top 10, at least until 1920. When we look at that powerful growth, probably fueled by several conditions locally, including immigration that you mentioned before, and look at Argentina today, what is, what can you say about Argentina's place in the world today? Well, Argentina is a country that doesn't have hard power in the traditional terms of international relationships. We are not a country that the way we approach our relation to the world is through weapons or arms or armies, or that's not our approach. And also is not the economic influence on other countries that we look for is not a hard power of finances or decision-making on the future of other countries. You know that some countries have legislators that with one vote decide the assistance of development for a country very far away that can change the life of that country if that development is approved or not in, a, in the Congress, for example, of a country. That, that's not Argentina. What we have is, uh, of course, something which is obvious uh, is called soft power. And the soft power is the way that we decided as a society to move forward in improving our values whether it's political, social, or economic organization. So, of course, each country is like every human being of the 7 billion that we are around or more has its own place in the world. We all always say we are individuals and there's not a single person that is exactly like the other. The countries is the same thing. The 195, we are each country. It's a construction of a society with values, with a social, historical context and ambitions for the future. In our case, we decided that we want a society with inclusion, a society that cannot wait for society exclusively in a spontaneous way to change for better. We had a, the best creation of the social tissue of Argentina is by far the human rights movement. If we have to be proud about something that we created as a society, was the human rights movement that in the UN is very well known because we have been uh, actually uh, one of the main actors in the progressive development of human rights at large see, since we came back from democracy. So 
that construction for us now is the leadership in deciding uh, that we can have a better society and we can have a positive impact in the world to create a better society. I give you just one example. We we were like in many other uh, societies traditional, of course, and we had this uh, historic background. But still, one day we decided that sexual orientation should not be a cause for exclusion, discrimination, and violence. And we were able, and at the time that um, we were one of the first countries in the world to have same-sex marriage, something that is being discussed today in the, in the radio in 2021, and we had it for many years. And there are 100, out of the 190 countries, approximately 77 still consider homosexuality a crime. And on the other side, you have countries that have decided, the societies, that not only we don't consider a crime, we consider that anybody can love whoever he or she wants. And, and so those are examples of a society that is dynamic in the discussion, dynamic in looking for new phases of evolution, of course, with difficulties, with dissent, with the political debate, huge political debates. We are very active. We are, uh, Argentina is a country that I'm sure everybody's surprised that when you get a, a cab driver, the cab driver in Argentina is able to talk fluidly about political reality, not only of Argentina, internationally. If you get a cab driver tomorrow, I, I can bet you that at one point, very nice people, they will start talking about Afghanistan and the Taliban and it's happening in the news. I don't say that they go and, and read the New York Times, but they are informed people. So when you have a society that is not dormant, that is not, of course, it's a responsibility to manage a society that is so dynamic, active, so engaged. We have public free universities all over the country, over 45 we are something that we have, we are very proud and is being admired by the rest of the world because, for example, the University of Buenos Aires is in one of the top 100 universities in the world and is free and public. And it's probably one of the few examples in the world of that. And therefore, when you produce a society, for example, in human rights, imagine from a dictatorship, we came to have 45 public universities with law schools where human rights is a compulsory obligatory matter. That means that thousands of lawyers are going out to the country already with the knowledge of human rights law. And they become judges, NGOs, diplomats. So the critical mass, and since I have a past in disarmament, I end up always giving those examples. And you know, for the creation of a nuclear bomb, you need the enrichment of uranium at a certain point. The critical mass of uranium of 235, which is the, the number that we usually use, is, is the one that creates the possibility of, of an expansion. So imagine what it means for a society to create a critical mass and a rich uranium of knowledge of human rights in thousands of people every year when they graduate from law school and they can go and defend people or be judged or be a diplomat. So that's, that's the way we relate.
And that is a perfect segue to the next part of our conversation mm -hmm. I would like to have with you, which is Argentina and the UN, Argentina in the UN. Mm -hmm. Now, what we know is Argentina is part of that nucleus of founding members of the yes. United Nations. So Argentina was there when the United Nations was created. Uh, it was there also when the World Bank and the World Trade Organization, Mercosur, were created. You're actually founding member of a number of international organizations. And even when you were not founding member, you are known the world over for being a member of many, many regional and international organizations. So mm -hmm. your acquaintance with multilateralism as a practice of dialogue and inclusion with other countries is uh, an exceptional record that everybody uh, knows that. You also served on the Security Council with distinction and on the Human Rights Council, of course, and listening to you, we now know much better the why you were so distinct in the Human Rights uh, Council as a member. Now, what assessment can you make as an ambassador today of the Argentinian experience in the UN all along, let's say, the recent history of the organization? Well, for us, the UN has been, as you mentioned, a place to debate how do we create a better humanity, a better future for the humanity, but how Argentina can contribute to that goal. That's basically the way we approach the UN always. Therefore, the debates, uh, because of this uh, critical mass of thinking that has used the international arena as a place to debate, uh, we were able to contribute along the, the way in disarmament and in human rights and also in social development. If I may make a comment on the present debates that we have, you know, the Cold War, when the Cold War ended, there was, we all thought, and, and most of the scientists, political scientists thought that there was a revealed truth at that time after the Berlin Wall ended. The revealed truth that was expressed by many famous books and scientists that we all know was that one side of the Cold War one over the other because they had a better way of organizing themselves socially, economically, and politically. And because on the other side, they did everything wrong, this part one over the other. And as you all know, that's not true. There was not one good and one bad. The revealed truth at that time that said, and COVID showed us, the misinterpretation of the reality that we had at the time uh, said the revealed truth that the state should be minimum. The absence of the state was a value at that time. The private sector was the only one, the only driving force that could make societies evolve. Therefore, the world changing, inequality increased immediately, even though trade created democracy came. That, of course, we all agree. But it's not that everything was perfect in the way of approaching on one side. So now the, the pendulum, what is trying, and that's the type of debates we have here in Geneva in every organization, is how do we coexist of different ways of political, social, and economic organization that each country, each society has the right to decide 
it's, we have to accept that each society constructs itself the way to organize politically, socially, and economically. Argentina decided when was about to be independent, there was somebody that said we should have a, a king, a local South American king. There was one of the options, and we decided not to have a monarchy. But as you know, many countries today have monarchies, and that's the way that they decide to construct their society. So in the UN, that's the one of the essential debates that we have, how to use the UN and the multilateralism to understand each other and respect each other in the way to approach our own values. You know, it's fascinating to be in Geneva in this moment. I have a privilege. At, at the beginning, it was a burden because uh, some countries have the privilege of having three missions here in Geneva. Most of them have two missions, WTO and, and UN, and others have even disarmament. And of course, to have only one mission, you have to rely on the enormous effort of the team you have. But COVID ended up showing that it's very useful to have one mission because COVID has forced humanity, but in particular international organizations, to look the solution to, of everything in an interdisciplinary way. It's what I find, my evaluation here of the UN in Geneva, which is fascinating, is that I feel that the 35 international organizations here approximately were born in different contexts for different reasons, with different bureaucracies, different treaties, etc., and not necessarily have been dialoguing among themselves. There was not, since the big establishment of International Geneva, something that forced those organizations to survive because it's a pandemic, to talk and work together. Therefore, now we see all the time that the director of the WHO is talking with the director of the WTO and is talking to the ILO and, of course, with the Madame Bachelet and, and the president of the Human Rights Council. Why? Because in, one, in, in a couple of months, we had a negotiation of a waiver on intellectual property on vaccines and parallel in the WHO on approval of vaccines and parallel in the Human Rights Council, a resolution on the equal access to vaccines as a human right. And that's just three examples, every organization. So I think it's a fascinating time for the UN to have a, a great brainstorming of this new opportunity of working together. Argentina will be part of all the discussions, and we are very active in the progressive development of human rights, of course, uh, not only on issues like uh, enforced disappearance and related to our past, which is the present, unfortunately, of many countries, but also on new issues for the future. Business and human rights, we were one of the leaders in bringing the idea here. And now the, the rights of older persons. Remember, you know, we have international treaties of human rights specifically for structural vulnerabilities. And we were able, after long debates, to have an instrument on children, which is very important, one of the most ratified treaties in the world. 
And we were able to have one on women, of course, which is a, a huge debt that humanity has on discrimination against women. And we have our instrument. And we were able to create one in 2005 for persons with disabilities. That was a huge stage. After long debates, we created and we changed the culture of approaching persons with disabilities, understanding them, and moving beyond the traditional paternalistic and patronizing way of approaching. And we changed the culture on persons with disabilities. It's an instrument. And now Argentina is moving forward to convince that we need the next step, which is older persons. Older persons, and COVID has shown bluntly, unfortunately, the vulnerability of other persons and the need for them to have a stronger international protection on their rights. And that's, for example, one of the leading initiatives that Argentina is moving in New York and, and here in Geneva also. As, as a last comment on this, sometimes people say the UN, why do we need it? And another common thing in a barbecue is when I'm a diplomat and people ask, okay, what do you do? You're a diplomat, okay. The UN, why, why do we need the UN? And then the other typical thing is, is these are old issues. Human rights are something from, from the past that uh, is not needed anymore. The Holocaust is long ago. It, it will not uh, repeat itself. And of course, the two things are wrong. And I start with the last. Uh, for 300 years, since the creation of the state that we know, you know, the notion of the state started in 1648 with the Westphalia and until 1948 for 300 years, we had a state and a development of international law and the relationship between the states that was exclusively based on the national interests of those states. Whatever happened with the people inside those states was not an issue to other state. No matter discrimination, massacres, exclusion, whatever you want to do, it was not a matter. The international law for 300 years was based on the law of the seas, on the, the rules of the war. 1948 and after the Holocaust, we decided as humanity that every human being had a right that internationally should be not only recognized but protected regardless of he or her nationality. It goes beyond the notion of this. But that is 1948. We are talking about only 75 years. So my question is, if for 300 years humanity had this approach of international law and we have been going through only 75 years I understand that this is the tip of the iceberg of international human rights law, and we have a long way to go. So we need institutions, strong institutions, to have a platform to continue growing, hopefully 300 years of progressive development. And the other thing, why, why do we need the UN? It's hard, you know, uh, and uh, I come from being ambassador in Mozambique. I opened the embassy of Argentina in Mozambique, a privilege I had of being four years in Africa. And I came directly to my post in Geneva from Maputo, from, from Mozambique last year. And when it's, there are many ways to answer, you know, 
Why do we need the UN? But among others, I feel, you know, international relations were based on power. That's not a scientific, political science, scientific concept. It's a real concept. It's a concept that includes the life of people. As we all know, colonialism was a decision of powers in a conference that divided the continent among themselves at that time. That was, it's not, we are not judging, but the concept itself, the international relations at that time for the absence of the eradication of war, for the absence of not having multilateralism, was that it was a power politic approach. So the ones that were in power decided to have the world moving forward in a certain direction. And so the most important, sophisticated, developed jurist in the world justified slavery and slave trade or colonialism. So that was, there was not a platform to discuss that that was wrong. And the countries in Africa that were the ones that were subject to that division and, of course, all kinds of atrocities did not have a platform where to go to discuss and convince other regions of the world to say this is wrong. Which is the platform that allowed those countries to become independent? This the process of decolonization. And that's why for Argentina, we will always continue in the UN moving forward to address the last situations of colonization that we have with the Malvinas Islands in the south of, of Argentina, that we, the UN soundly has said that this is a sovereignty dispute that uh, we should address with the United Kingdom, and uh, we need to address that because it's part of an inheritance of uh, colonialism that we are ready as humanity to move forward and turn the page on colonialism. And so it's, it's fascinating to be here. And from all you're saying, it's clear that the role of Argentina in the UN is very much alive, is powerful, and it's also leading in many, many sectors that resonate also with your internal values as a country <laughs> and dialogue and debate. Now, let's continue to talk about Argentina and the UN. I remember... Just after the adoption of Agenda 2030, we were in early 2016 when uh, the Secretary General, then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, had an official visit to your country. And he famously said, I congratulate Argentina for its commitment to the values of the UN, an early start on the implementation of Agenda 2030. Here we're just in 2016. The document yeah. is uh, just adopted September 2015 in the General Assembly, so it's brand new. So what is your view as an ambassador to the UN concerning Agenda 2030 and the SDGs for Latin America, let's say the Latin America of tomorrow? What is the potential of this agenda? I think that the Agenda 2030 and the SDGs is an opportunity for Latin America to have a boost, a real boost in our development. Why? For two reasons. The first, something that comes before the debate on climate change, before the debate of the environment, which is the social inclusion. I always say, what is the most important thing of development? 
And the most important thing is that you are able to have development for all. But that is a construction, a social construction that has a philosophy behind, which is the person that is wealthy needs to understand that if the person that is very poor improves its situation, is not only something that will benefit that person, it's something that will benefit the wealthy also, because the whole society evolves. In the international discussions, we have exactly the same rationale. The, and COVID has again showed us the importance of the interconnection. There's no point in having an isolated development process in a country if we have so many countries that do not reach the level of development. Because if those countries go well and improve their situation, I will be better off. And the SDGs is a way of approaching different issues across the board to have genuinely this new phase in and the international relationship of leveling the playing field of the different peoples of the world in development with inclusion. In our case, opens up a whole discussion which is fascinating for a case like Argentina on environment because we have we are privileged of course we are a country of the eighth country in the world as you say with enormous natural resources of all types we have 36 million hectares producing agriculture and food for 500 million people and you know Mozambique has 36 million hectares that also could produce food. And today they are producing agriculture in 5 million hectares because the agricultural revolution of Mozambique and many other African countries are going today as we speak. They're moving forward in the revolution of producing food in Africa. So that's the world that we have and the SDGs. In the case of Argentina, puts us in the mirror of understanding the environmental agenda on renewable energies, regardless of the huge resources that we have on oil and gas and others. We have all the social inclusion. For example, in the WTO, we are negotiating the first treaty, the agreement that will merge trade with sustainable development and an SDG, which is 14.6, which is subsidies for illegal, undeclared, unregulated fishing that is depredating the stocks all over the world, which is an SDG itself. So I think that the Agenda 2030 is, is something, but still is not as visible as I would like. I would like that every country decides strategically to identify the public policies, the legislation in each country and put it facing the mirror of the SDGs and have a strategic program to uh, move forward in linking the public policies. And so it has to become, the SDGs has to become a household name like the UN chart. When we start, you know, quoting by heart, Article 51 of the Charter or the veto power and the 108 article on the reform of the Charter. I think we do it by heart because we, it's already in our knowledge. SDGs 
should be in everywhere in the knowledge and should be even memorized by everybody. And every time we address a public policy, look at this decision of humanity at the highest level, where do we want to go? Perhaps let's touch on the last point concerning Argentina life in the UN as a global organization. You touched upon it a little bit, but I wanted to be, to go specific to this point together with you. Argentina is a paradigm of a multicultural country. Yes. I like to ask you, how does this influence your view as a people of multilateralism and collective security? Well, definitely when you think that you constructed your society with diversity, multilateralism becomes automatically a value. In the case of Argentina, when we have to decide what shaped Argentina, it was shaped by the indigenous peoples that were living there. It was shaped by the immigration and that changed because we had European immigration massively until 1940s. But since 1940s, the 80% of our immigration has been from Latin America. So that's another stage of shaping that. Therefore, we decided something very simple, but very difficult to achieve, which is to understand that diversity enriches our society, not the contrary. Sometimes, unfortunately, because of different speeches on whether it's security, terrorism, it doesn't matter. We are very lively listening to those discussions. It's something that is different. We end up having fear or mistrust because it's different. We feel better to continue in our comfort zone of the what we know. Argentina, because of our history of construction of a society, we decided the country, we decided that the multiculturalism, the diversity, and even the extraordinary coexistence of, of religions is something that is a value, an added value to society. And that's why we have been so actively using multilateralism, for example, for the eradication of patterns of discrimination, for example. After the Durban Conference in 2001, of course, the Durban Conference on discrimination uh, has some parts of that conference that ended up in the media as a conflict. But that might be the case. But what came out of that conference is a new phase of understanding fight against discrimination. For example, if you look at the world now, the word tolerance, when you use tolerance, at least in Spanish, and I think in English also, tolerate implies that you don't like what you tolerate. I tolerate something. That includes an assumption that I don't like it, but I tolerate. So intolerancia, intolerance was evolved to fight against discrimination. And look what we are now. We are acquiring a new term in the world, which is respect for diversity. And that's the next stage. So we were able to be at the forefront of this new decision. And that's why after Durban, at that time, the High Commissioner Robinson, one of the things that were approved in Durban was that each country should have a diagnosis of the patterns of discrimination in each country in order to eradicate the obstacles 
to fight against that. And we came back from Durban and we were one of the few countries in the world that with the high commissioner created a project and we approved a national plan against discrimination, but not done by the states, done by independent experts with the help of the UN that travel around the country to talk to victims, real people on discrimination, and made the most important ever done diagnosis of the patterns of discrimination in our society with 240 concrete proposals of changes of laws and policies in order to eradicate that, addressing all types of discrimination on colored people, on indigenous people, on immigration, on LGBT, etc. And you know what? That was approved in 2006. We had a tremendous political will that decided to approve the plan without changing a coma of what the independent experts did and order all the whole administration to follow that. And today, we are proud to say that almost 90% of those 240 are a fact. And we're talking about the uh, already have been eradicated or changed. And we're talking about very fascinating things that sometimes we don't even realize. Things like we have over 100 new legislation that came out of that plan. Things very uh, simple, like persons overweight that want to go to clothing store and have the right to have at least some sizes that allow them to enjoy fashion also. And that's called Lei Detage that, that uh, regulates that every clothing store has to have a certain number of sizes to, to for that. And many, 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 over 240. So that's diversity. And therefore, multilateralism for us is obviously our platform. And that is so evident that multiculturalism is linked to multilateralism in your life as, as a nation. But we hope, of course, that is a case that repeats itself in other nations as well. Ambassador Villegas, as we wrap up this episode of the podcast and to conclude, do you have any particular message for those who are listening to us? What do you want our audience to remember? Well, I would like to the audience to remember that there are many sources of information of what the UN is doing. And I think that people should be conscious that the UN is not an international bureaucracy in Geneva or New York. The UN is us, all the people, and is here. And the diplomats that we are in the UN, we are here because of the people. Therefore, the next stage will be to use the social networks as a positive advancement to have a new phase of ownership of the UN, ownership by society at large, international society at large. Stop looking at the UN as something distant, a bureaucracy. No, start owning the UN. Because if we decide that the SDGs are for humanity and humanity is the one that will benefit, but also will be moving forward as it is, we need to own the UN also. That's very powerful. Well said. Ambassador Federico Villegas, permanent representative of Argentina to United Nations in Geneva. Thank you so much for taking oh, the time you. for being with us. Thank you very much. And thank you for the invitation. 
We hope that you enjoyed that conversation between Federico Viegas and our director, Francesco Pisano. If you'd like any more information, please don't hesitate to check out our show notes where we've put useful links for you. If you love this episode of the Next Page podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, or find us at UNOG Library on Twitter and UN Library and Archives Geneva on Facebook. Don't forget to join us every fortnight on Fridays for the next episode. Thank you for listening.